we thank you for our church family. Thank you, Lord, for the, the fun and uh, good activities yesterday, the fellowship, the preaching of the Word of God at the Harvest Rally. Thank you for safety for the teens as they traveled to and from and uh, for the, the fellowship they had and interacting with other uh, teens and other churches. We thank you, Lord, for the Word of God that went forth. We pray for uh, rest and strength for our young people and for uh, uh, the youngs as uh, they sponsored. We, again, thank you for protection and for traveling. And we thank you, Lord, for a good golf outing as well and for the fellowship and for the gospel that went out uh, through uh, that activity. Thank you, Lord, for uh, safety even in that activity as well. We pray, Lord, you bless the teens as they meet together for the children's Sunday school as it is going on this hour. Pray you bless our, our Bible study class uh, here in the auditorium. Pray you bless the service to follow as well. Pray the Lord our hearts will be lifted up in uh, praise to you and that, so Lord, we will uh, allow the word of God to do uh, his work, do your work in our lives. And we pray for uh, Arnie. Continue to give him strength for the Snyders. Thank you, Lord, for your healing hand in their life. We pray for Doug as he goes in for surgery tomorrow. Pray this surgery will be very successful and give him great relief from the pain that he has been in. Pray for his tooth as well. Think of uh, Bob Klein going in for surgery on Wednesday and for the Marion's son, Kirk, as well. Uh, so he'll be having surgery. Pray for Kelly. Pray that her eye will heal. Give her relief from the pain and the irritation. Pray continue to help Phyllis as well. She's been dealing with uh, a good deal of abdominal pain lately. Pray for your healing hand in her life as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll dismiss the teens. Hope that you have a great class and uh, enjoy uh, your time together. And then we'll be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2 in our adult class. And uh, I'll step down and we will... Go back to our study on the church in Acts, the book of Acts, starting with Acts chapter number 2. All right, we were in the book of Acts again last week, and we spent some time looking at a church growth strategy that, again, would not sell big uh, on, the, uh, on the market for church strategy. I know that the church marketing movement or the church growth movement, whatever you want to call it, has been through various trends and stages, and I realize that Acts uh, chapter 2 and uh, down there in verses 41 and 42, I realize that these two verses packaged up and sold as a church marketing strategy would, would probably not be on the top 10. But I believe it's, it's very simple and very clear-cut in Scripture how God grows His church. <clears throat> and uh, we looked at this uh, briefly last week, or I, actually we spent the, the entire time, the entire hour looking at this last week. Uh, I'll just come back and briefly rehearse it. But we see very uh, simple principles that really when we, we, we look at these, and we look at the simplicity of them, we're tempted, we're tempted to think, there, there's no way that this will work. There, there, there's no way that uh, this can be all that there is uh, to growing the church God's way. Uh, surely there's uh, a more complex, uh, there's a, a, a better way. But, but I think that we have to, again, come back to the fact that we are depending upon God, not upon man, for doing God's work. And I think what has happened too often in the church is 
we have tried to make the growth of the church man-centered instead of God-centered. And, and just like we, we pass out a tract, God's simple plan of salvation, the, the simplicity of the gospel sometimes is the greatest stumbling block and obstacle. I mean that in, in the right sense. Because man, Satan, loves disorder and complication, and man wants to do things his way, and man wants to have things according to his likes and his feelings and his wants. And the gospel deals with our sinful condition. And man wants to sidestep sin. Man wants to gloss over sin. Man wants to put a lot of thick icing on sin and make it more palatable and redefine sin. And where have we gone as a culture as sin has been redefined, glossed over, and renamed, and even just flat out ignored in many cases? What, what has happened to our culture as the church adopts worldly practices and worldly systems and glosses over the gospel and takes the hard truths out and sells the gospel light, the diet gospel, uh, to say it uh, a different way, with, with, with reverence and, and respect for the, the truths of the gospel. What, what has happened when the church has done that? The church fills up with unsaved people. The church fills up with carnal people. And then what happens? Well, the unsaved say, well, I want this, I want that. Carnal people say, I want this, I want that. And it's not about God and his holiness and reverence for the Lord and the church being salt and light and distinct. It's the church adopting worldly methods and worldly ways and appealing to the baser, carnal, fleshly appetites of man, and the church gets upside down. So again, we come back to what is really a simplistic but very hard from a human standpoint because of our sin nature, because of our resistance to doing things God's way because we want to do things our way. And if you've ever had a stubborn child... And all of us, to some degree, have been stubborn children at some point in our lives. Uh, but sometimes we have children that are a little bit more stubborn than others. Maybe they have a little bit stronger will uh, than the others. And I will not name which one of my children uh, had the little bit more stubborn will uh, than the others. But there's a resistance sometimes, and it's just frustrating at times. Why can you not just do this simple thing? Why can you not just obey this simple order, this simple rule? I've told you a hundred times. Or why the attitude? Why now? Why are we not ready for church? And it's time to walk out the door. <laughs> on and on it goes. Okay? And, and we get exasperated as parents. We get exasperated uh, in uh, the home in uh, those kinds of situations. I'm thankful that God doesn't get exasperated with us. I'm thankful that God is a long-suffering God, and he is a, he's a patient God. But it's the, the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. So we see in the gospel the goodness of God, the love of God, his mercy, his grace. But man has flipped that, hasn't he? The gospel is hard. The gospel is too difficult. The gospel is this or the gospel is that. 
And what does it come down to? Man doesn't want to deal with his sin. Man doesn't want to submit to God and to God's order and to God's authority. And we see that even in the book of John as we've been studying through and looking at the religious leaders and the resistance to Jesus Christ. So what makes the church growth strategy of Acts 2, 41 and 42 hard? What makes it hard? Man. Our stubbornness. Our resistance to doing things God's way. We make it hard, just like our, our child or we growing up maybe have been that one who made it hard for mom and dad. We made it difficult. Make, we are the ones that make it difficult because we resist God's way. We are stubborn. And the church then capitulates to that sometimes and endorses sin and carnality. And the church sometimes will cater to the carnality and the disorder of the world. And it, it, it's, it's repulsive. And then the salt loses its savor. The light gets clouded up. The bushel gets put on top of the, the candle. And we're not able to shine forth the word of God and the glory of God and the truth of the gospel that saves because it's clouded over or covered up where the salt has lost its savor. So we look at these and we see in verse 41, clearly after Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So we see the church is made up of saved people. That's the basic first starting point. The church is made up of saved people. And when back in the early, Amer early days of American history, there was a compromise in the Puritan church, and I forget the, the, uh, the act or the order, but it, um, it, what it did is, is, is the church uh, became uh, carnal and, and began to compromise. There was an order or there was an act that resulted in many of, and at this point the Puritan church had begun to uh, fall away from uh, the, the gospel and the truth of the gospel. Uh, the Puritan church hadn't remained as pure as it had when it first uh, came to America. And there were some, there were some doctrinal uh, changes. And I forget the name of the act or the order that came through, but it resulted in the church having members that were unsaved. So the leadership of the church had made a, a rule or an order, and I, again, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it literally resulted in unsaved people becoming members of the church. And it took what the church was already compromising, the church had already begun to uh, give in to some of the carnality of, of the world, and when that order, when that act went through, the church filled up in number... Offerings increased, but the sanctity and the purity of the church went like this. And then eventually some of those compromises resulted in Harvard going from a school that used to train preachers to the bastion of liberalism that it is today. You see where that compromise ended up. Here we are, you know, 200 years later, and we wouldn't dare have a, a preacher trained at Harvard. <laughs> you know, Harvard is producing 
some of the, the most wicked and vile uh, ideas uh, that are out there in, in many cases. So we see, first of all, a saved church membership. Number two, doctrine. They continued steadfastly, verse 42, in the apostles' doctrine. So we see the teaching of the Word of God, the truth of the Word of God. Apostles' doctrine refers to the revealed body of truth of God's Word. The apostles weren't making up things as they went along. They were receiving from God the inspired Word of God, God breathed, and they were penning that, and eventually we would have all 66 books as John closed the canon of Scripture by the inspiration of God at the end of Revelation. He writes, anybody who adds to or takes away from this book, may the plagues of this book come upon them. A warning there about adding to or taking away from the the word of God. And again, it wasn't some church council in the early centuries that decided, okay, we need Genesis through Revelation, these 66 books. No, the church recognized, we already had the Old Testament that was clearly recognized by the Jewish people, and by the early Christians, but the New Testament, it wasn't some council of Nicaea or, or Carthage or whatever those early church councils were. They didn't decide what the New Testament books were to be. They recognized what the church was already using and clearly understood as the word of God. Those early church councils simply said, yeah, those must be the inspired Word of God, those, those letters, those books, those epistles must be the Word of God because it was clear in teaching and in the way those uh, scriptures were impacting lives and changing lives and all the evidences, internal and external evidences, it was clear these were the books of the New Testament. The church was already using them, was recognizing them as the Word of God. The council came along as there were attacks upon the authority of Scripture, those councils came along and said, okay, we're going to vote on this, but we're voting on something that has already been recognized by the church. So it wasn't like the councils, the early church councils said, okay, um, God, um, we're going to take what we think is yours and we're going to vote on it, and hopefully you'll put your approval on it. Okay, we, had, we have it backwards sometimes. It was the church already recognizing the apostles' doctrine, the revealed body of truth, the church recognizing that, and then those councils, as these attacks came against the church and the word of God, these councils said, God's word is, is clear. God's word is true. God's word is recognized. We're just simply going to verify what is already true. Okay? So let's continue with fellowship. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. This has to do with being together, the one another principle. Again, this has to do with us coming together, meeting together on a regular, consistent basis. It doesn't mean that we can't have a virtual meeting or a live stream as needed, but that's not where the church ultimately is fulfilled. That's not where the church ultimately meets, just like we dealt with in COVID. It's important for us to come together. And to come together often and regularly. We need each other. The early church met every day. We read in the book of Acts. They met, they came together every day. Now I realize with the busyness of our lives and our schedules, we don't have that ability uh, necessarily. 
uh, to come together every day in a church corporate worship setting. But it does help us understand the pattern of the early church and the necessity of coming together. And again, yesterday was fun. Golfing, uh, visiting the Green family 18 times was, was um, sometimes it was a little harder to get to the Green family. Um, but, you know, we enjoyed the time around the golf course, but that wasn't church. I know that there are some people, the golf course, the Green family is church for them on a regular basis on Sundays. Uh, I've heard people say, well, I go out into the, the woods, and that's my, my devotional time. That's my church, okay? No, yesterday was not church. Now, we had church people there. Thankfully, we had uh, a lot of people there who uh, received the, the gospel in, in written form, and we prayed together. But we didn't have church at Angel Hills Golf Course, did we, Jerry? That wasn't church. We had a good time. That fellowship was good. But this is church. This is us coming together for a distinct purpose. And we're distinct people with a distinct purpose coming together to hear the word of God and to worship together and to praise the Lord and offer our sacrifices of praise. And that fellowship is necessary. And then the cross. Lord's Supper, the love feast. 1 Corinthians 11 refers to a love feast. Now, the Corinthians had gotten carried away with that. And the Lord's Supper had been kind of lost in the potluck dinner, the dinner on the grounds, depending on what area of the country you're from. It's called different things. Uh, I grew up and it was, you know, a potluck dinner. Some places it's, it's called something else. I forget all the different terms for when we put food on tables and we all come into the fellowship hall and go through the lines, right? People call it different things in different places. Now that is good. We need to do that. And that's important for us. But is that communion? Is that the Lord's table? No. So the fellowship is one thing. The love feast was, yes, a dinner on the grounds, a potluck dinner, whatever you want to call it, church pitch in. Okay. But the Corinthians had to be corrected because the Lord's Supper got wrapped up so much in all that that people lost the distinction and the meaning of the Lord's table. And Paul had to correct the church about that. So next Sunday night, Lord willing, in the evening service, we'll have the Lord's table. A distinct time, separate from a church pitch-in out here or in the fellowship hall. Distinct from that, where we have a memorial, where we draw our attention to the symbols of the bread and the juice, symbolizing the body and the blood of Christ. And we have that distinct time where we recognize in that ordinance and reflect upon the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the church did that on a regular, consistent basis. Once again, number five, we talk about prayer. It's good for us to pray individually, pray as a family, it's good for us to have prayer groups. I love, again, the fact that our church on Wednesday night sets aside a time that we have prayer. Small groups, family groups. I know sometimes we do corporate prayer. But that is so important for our church to pray together. It is so important for us to have a time. Again, it's important as a family. It's important in these individual settings, sometimes we have a specific need. We call somebody up or we get together and we pray. 
It's important for us to pray corporately and pray before meetings and pray before our meals. We see that pattern in Scripture. We see that principle in Scripture. But we have our individual devotional prayer life, and then we have the church coming together. Acts 1, they had a prayer meeting. Christ had ascended up, and the church was in its infancy. We hadn't even gotten to Acts 2, where Peter preaches the day of Pentecost, and there's the the birthing of the church. It's almost like Acts 1 is that prenatal, (laughs) if we can take the birth analogy. It's almost like Acts 1 is that prenatal time. Does Does a child need prenatal care? Does a baby need prenatal care? Yeah, I remember when uh, we first uh, saw the, the pregnancy test and, and Kelly was expecting with, with Emily and we called the, the doctor and we got those early tests and you know, those early doctor's appointments, I mean, and she started the prenatal vitamins and, and all that. It's almost like Acts chapter 1 is that prenatal time and they came together and they prayed. Lord, what, what is next? What do we need to do? They came together as a church family, loving one another, praying for one another. Then from there, there's the, uh, the choosing of the apostle to replace Judas, uh, Matthias, and then Acts 2, the preaching of the word of God, and that brings us to the end of chapter number 2. So, that's a review. And then I found this... Um, I was preparing for uh, this this week, and I came across this, and I thought it, thought it was very good. Okay. Can these activities be good? Family devotions, of course. Uh, meeting with God in the woods. Well, sure, we can go on a prayer walk. <laughs> we can have a devotional time in the woods. Uh, some of you might have a nice deck with a uh, private or semi-private backyard, and you have a place maybe out on your deck, and you sit in Read your Bible and pray. That, that's, that's great. Uh, we can have independent Bible studies. Uh, we can, I, I don't particularly, I don't take communion to the hospital and give it to somebody. Or I don't necessarily go out to a private place and baptize somebody or take a jug of water or a bathtub, you know, and dunk people. That, again, those are ordinances of the church. I know there are some pastors that will, that will do that. I believe that those are, uh, in Scripture, a corporate, a corporate setting. That's another topic for another day. But anyway, those don't mean the church. Those aren't the church. Uh, a small group without pastoral authority or member accountability. Again, not that there can't be a small group Bible study. Uh, Lord willing, uh, tomorrow night we're going to be on the Purdue campus uh, doing a, a Bible study with some of the college students. But that's not the church. That's an extension of the church, but that doesn't replace the church. Um, Again, online, as we've seen, uh, there are obviously those who are sick, shut in, whatever the the case may be. They can't come physically. And the live stream, the the online setting is a way for them to be a part and be included. But they have a valid reason for not physically being able to be here. But these are church activities, but without the one another principle... Without the local assembly, the gathering of ourselves together, without that, it's really not the church. It's a church activity, maybe an extension of the church, a ministry of the church. There's, I'm finding out, just like in education, as a, as a principal, I learned that there were hundreds of people and organizations, well-meaning, but hundreds of organizations and probably thousands of people who 
would love to tell me how to do my job as a principal. And I, don't, I know they, they meant well, and some of them had very good services. But I found out sometimes through the mistake of, of one time I subscribed to an educational magazine. And I must have forgotten to read the fine print at the bottom that said, we will not share your information with other companies. I must not have read that or something. And they must have shared my information with hundreds of educational organizations out there. All of a sudden, my inbox was just getting filled up with, we will raise your math scores in your school. We will raise your English scores. We will make all, your, all the students in your school uh, wonderful well-ordered, well-mannered, well-behavioured kids, right? I mean, on and on and on it goes. I mean, there were organizations one after another for the low cost of $99.95 or six monthly payments of, you know, right? I mean, I remember just getting bombarded with, there were so many hundreds of organizations and thousands of people out there, again, that meant well, but they were almost always former educators, but now they were experts on how to take care of today's children, in the schools, right? I just found that interesting. Well, I'm learning as a pastor that it's not too different. I'm finding as I get emails and I bump into different, I mean, there's so many parachurch organizations. There are so many people out there that want to help the pastor and want to help the church. And some of them are literally saying, if you do this discipleship method, all of your people will be wonderful spiritual people. <laughs> right? And it's just, you get bombarded sometimes with all of these things of all these, there's good parachurch organizations. There are good curriculums. We're using them in the, in the, uh, the Sunday school. We're using them in the, in, in, you know, the teen group. There are some good curriculums. There are some good programs. There are some good discipleship programs. Uh, I've got one on my computer and, and it's an excellent one. But it's, it's almost like sometimes it's just overwhelming at the number of parachurch organizations and, and extensions of the church. Those are good activities. Those are good ministries. But they don't replace the church. They don't replace the church. And uh, I've now learned of a, of a new... Uh, I understand with, with some of the issues with COVID and pastoral burnout... I've, I've heard of this more lately in the last two and a half to three years than I ever did, but now there are pastoral coaches. You know how you have a life coach and you have, you have these different coaches for different businesses and different types of careers? Now I'm learning that there are pastoral, there are coaches for pastors. So I can sign up now. I can go to LinkedIn and I can sign up for a pastoral coach. Now, are there times where pastors need encouragement and, and, and is, there, is pastoral burnout a real thing? Sure it is. But I, I just feel, I feel bad if I have to sign up for uh, hundreds of dollars a year program to get a coach as a pastor. I just, I, I never, I, I don't know, I just don't see that in the New Testament. I don't see Paul saying sign up for a, a, a pastoral coach. I mean, I thought of a coach or a uh, a trainer as somebody who trains for a sport or for some sort of athletic activity or for uh, a musical instrument. Now you can get a trainer or a coach for just about every career and, and even for, for pastoring now. Uh, just, just unbelievable, uh, all the things that are out there. 
But we need to keep the, the main thing the main thing. And I know it sometimes seems so basic, but the church is not those activities, though those activities may be well and good. Okay? So, we get, again, we get back to the basics here in Acts chapter number 2. And we see that already in the early days as Christ has been in his earthly ministry, as he has trained his disciples, as the church begins, we see Christianity separating itself from all other religions. This is fascinating. I'd like to spend some more time on this next week, and then we'll have the, the missions conference on the 25th. But let's look at, look at this for a minute. I don't, want, I don't want to break this down too much, but think about Christianity. Think about the land of Canaan, as Israel came out of Egypt, a pantheistic, polytheistic, idolatrous culture, went into Canaan, a polytheistic, pantheistic, idolatrous, immoral culture. You can go to chapters in Leviticus and Deuteronomy where the Mosaic Law is given and there are lists of immoral sins, moral sins. And in those passages, we read, this is the, the sins of the land. These are the sins of the Canaanites. And their sin, when it is ripe, is going to fall under the judgment of God. And you are going to be God's instrument in judging the Canaanites. Okay? The Jews were the chosen people. We know that the church is now that chosen group of people to take the gospel to the world. It was the Jews until crucifixion of Christ, and then now we have, we're in the church age. And I know I'm getting into a little bit of dispensation here. Okay, We know that the Jews will be grafted in. Romans, we read about the, the grafting in of the, the, the Jews. The Jew first and also the Greek, Romans 1, verse 16. But the Jews, Christianity, brought a monotheistic religion. Now, Christianity is primarily a relationship. It is a religion, but it's primarily a relationship. There are religious aspects to Christianity. We get that. But it is primarily a relationship. What else is distinct? Christianity is scriptural. We have a written book. This is the most published book of all time. No other book comes even close to the publication, the printing, the distribution of the Bible. The church is scriptural. Now, how does that set us apart from other religions? What are, what are some religions all about? What's that? Self, okay. Mystical religions, right? Uh, oral traditions, uh, candles, and again, I get into the spiritism and the mystical. I remember being in Africa on mission trips, and there were tribes, missionaries were reaching, and there were tribal customs that often are spiritism and mystical type activities. We can take people to a book. 
And let me, let me go a little further. Historical. There are historical events, traceable, verifiable, that are recorded in Scripture. Not that the book is a his, not that the Bible is a history textbook. But what, what's the Book of Mormon talk about? A vision from God that never happened? Lies about supposed historic events? We can go on and on with the different religions that are out there. Okay? Even Islam has a mysticism to it. The Quran is not a historical narrative book with meaning. It's a conglomeration of a lot of sayings, not in really very organized form, but visions and sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. You can go through archaeological digs. We can go through historical writings and timetables, extra-biblical historical items in museums and in various places around the world, and they all come back to verifying what the Bible already says is true. One of, the, one of my favorite papers in grad school and seminary was a, book on, was a paper on archaeology. And I just did a small sample of study, and it was fascinating. And there are more and more archaeological digs that are discovering artifacts and timetables and genealogical records and names and on and on. And they all keep coming back to, huh, yeah, what the Bible said is, is true after all. It just verifies what the Bible already says is true. There is a verifiable historical aspect to Christianity. Oh, there's revisionist historical people out there. I just heard another one this week. Sorry about that. Must have a little glitch. I heard another revisionist version of Christianity this week that I had never heard before. Somebody else came up with another idea of an aspect of Christianity with no historical veracity to it at all. It was just another lie pumped out in the modern media, in the mass media, in the legacy media, whatever you want to call them. And they ran with the story because it was for them an opportunity to have a narrative not based up with facts, not based with facts, backed up with, with facts, but uh, it met their narrative. So it was full of lies. And it was an attacking Christianity. Sad. We can keep coming back to the historical veracity of the scriptures and obviously the doctrinal veracity of, of the scriptures. Uh, relational and public. What I mean by that is there is a relationship with God that Christianity teaches that no other religion has. None. What kind of a, what kind of a relationship do the Muslims have with Allah? Fear? Judgment? Hopefully, if they do enough good works, if they keep the five pillars, they can get favor with Allah, maybe. We can go on and on with the different religious systems. I mean, gods of Hindus and Buddhists, they live in fear. It actually endorses the mistreatment of human beings and spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on gold-plated temples. 
while people live in abject poverty and die without basic human services because they are appeasing a false god. We have the awesome privilege of serving a holy God who has a personal relationship with us through Jesus Christ who sent his son out of love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That's hallelujah. That's incredible. There's no other religion that has that. There is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it's public. There's no secret codes. We live out our faith publicly. Don't we? Now we know places around the world. There's an underground church in different places where it's harder to publicly gather like this. They do so with the fear, with the, I shouldn't maybe use the word fear, but with the threats of their church being disbanded or people being thrown in jail. Okay? But there is a public aspect to the Christian life, to Christianity. Did Jesus not even say that to the religious leaders, to the group of Jews that hated him? He said, have I not preached in the temple? Have I not lived out my life publicly? Have I not done good works and done miracles, healings in the public eye? Honest and transparent. What happens with a lot of these false religions? Secret codes, secret meanings, secret lifestyles. When you dig a little deeper, you find out that there's some weird stuff going on. You dig into some of these false religions and there's some perversions that I won't even mention publicly here because it's so distasteful to mention some of the things that go on in these secret religions and these false religions. Christianity has none of that. Is there a secret aspect to our relationship in the sense that there's a personal relationship with God, the Holy Spirit? I don't even want, don't want to use the word secret. I don't even want to use the word mystical. Okay, there's a mystery, okay, to some degree, to that, in our personal walk with God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But there's, there's not a secret order. There's not a secrecy to our relationship with God in, that, in the sense that we have a real, authentic, public manifestation of our faith. We live it out and we declare it boldly and publicly. We live out our faith in evangelism and the good works that God has called us to and in service for others. We don't come and I don't hide underneath the pulpit some secret book and bring it out and declare, okay, well, these numbers, when you add them up, that means this. And that number then has this special meaning. So if you do these things by these numbers, according to these secret codes, then you will have this secret blessing. <laughs> That's not at all how Christianity operates. Okay? So we see that very distinct um, from false religions. We can look at Christianity and we see um, Christ, of course. Again, I'm not saying these things in a disrespectful way. I'm saying these with all reverence. Christ being the greatest prophet of Christianity, God himself, okay, God in the flesh. He is God. And again, that claim either makes Christ 
a liar and a lunatic, or he is the Son of God. He is God. Okay? That's a bold claim. And Christianity even rests upon that claim. And, of course, the resurrection. If he was just a man, died, and stayed in the grave, our faith is in vain. We follow an errorless book, a divinely revealed truth, claim of salvation by faith, not a good works. That's distinct. That makes Christianity distinct. Followers would rather die than renounce their faith. And then we'll have to close here. But there is an incredible extension of Christianity that shows compassion, that brought dignity to human life, that education and medicine followed. Um, we can go on and on. There's a couple of books, an unsaved man by the name of, I think his name is Tom Holland, uh, wrote a book, I think it's called maybe Dominion, I forget the title now, and it's an unsaved man who writes about the contributions of Christianity to the world, historically and, and throughout, throughout history, even in, in the present day. And then I read a book by Jeremiah Johnston uh, called Unimaginable, fascinating book that talks about the history of Christianity and how Christianity has influenced the world for good far greater than any other religion and without Christianity the world would still be steeped in paganism and some of the rankest forms of idolatry and immorality and wickedness what, what, what was the in, in Bible times what was the ruling empire what were the Romans known for Cruelty, filthy immorality, wicked lifestyles. Christianity overcame all that. Christianity brought the world out of that kind of paganism and idolatry. We, we could spend more time on that, Lord willing. We'll talk some more about that next week. We already spent some time on Acts 1 and 2. We're out of time. Uh, sorry, I've spent more time talking than asking questions. But any closing comments or, or questions? Yes, Abby. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. Correct. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Ultimately, the attacks upon religion focus on Christianity. You're right. And we we eventually see that it comes down to God's authority. Salvation, sin, yeah. And there's an assurance, there's a comfort in that. Yeah, good, excellent. Yes, Bob. Yeah, exactly. Even the best religious efforts that are out there that have compassion, goodness. Um, you know, you look at Mormonism, they, they promote family, they promote a certain level of morality. But really, when it, when it boils down to it, it's, a good, it's about works. It's about good works. You're exactly right. And then you get a little deeper into Mormonism and you find out some of the immoral perversions that are kind of below the surface. But yeah, great point. Drew. Yes, and you also notice that like a lot of these religions are coming together sort of and meeting together sometimes. And yes. Most of these religions are eventually most likely going to form the one world religion. Yes. There's an ecumenical flavor and we see it more and more different religions are beginning to 
work together and they talk about the things that we have in common and the whole coexist. And then eventually we can see where that will lead to the false prophet who will accompany the Antichrist. Yeah, great point. Yes, Galen. Great point. Yeah, great point. Who is ultimately the resistance to the sin and the, the flesh and the devil? It's Christianity. It's Christ. You're exactly right. Yep. Do I see another, another hand? David and then uh, Doug. Go ahead, David. Yes. Right. Right. Good. Yep. We're not a political organization. Good point. Yes. Sure. Sure. Good point. And right. Even today, I, I question, you know, a lot, especially Islam, where you, you say, is Allah not powerful enough to look after himself? Why does he need someone to kill in his name? Interesting point. Right. Yeah. Is Allah not a big boy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. Right. Christianity has not used violence and force to promote and to spread the truth. Yeah. Good. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's, he's our promise. Is that what you were saying? Yes, good point. Right, the Christianity is fulfilled in a person, Jesus Christ. Good point. Good. Great, great thoughts. Uh, we'll close with that. And uh, so let's pray, and then we'll get ready for the service to follow. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the, the promise uh, in Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of your word in Jesus Christ and the relationship that we have uh, with you through him. Thank you, Lord, for... Our great salvation, may, Lord, we never take it for granted. And, Lord, I pray that you will increase our faith and our trust in you and help us, Lord, to live out that faith in faithfulness and obedience. pray you bless the service now to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll uh, start the service in about 15 minutes.